Hello and welcome to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. On this edition of the program, we ask three questions. How is the conflict in Ukraine likely to end? Why does the West refuse to negotiate an end to the conflict? And how will the international order likely change as a result of the conflict in Ukraine? Crosstalking the conflict in Ukraine, I'm joined by my guest, Scott Ritter in Delmar. He's a former intelligence officer and United Nations weapons inspector. In Tampa, we have Larry Johnson. He's a managing partner for Berg Associates and a former CIA analyst and U.S. State Department counterterrorism official. And in Philadelphia, we cross to Aaron Good. He is a political scientist, historian, and author of American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. All right, gentlemen, crosstalk rules in effect. That means you can jump anytime you want, and I always appreciate it. Scott, let me go to you first in Delmar. I know we've been talking about this for months and months now. I've almost devoted every single program since the start of the conflict on uh, the conflict in Ukraine. But I think sometimes it's important to kind of step back and look at the very big picture here. So the first question is, I said in my introduction, uh, how do you think this conflict in Ukraine is likely to end? This conflict will end with a uh, complete Russian victory. Uh, That's the only possible solution. Russia can tolerate nothing less than this. Uh, having engaged in uh, this conflict to the level it has, Russia cannot tolerate a situation that allows um, this Ukrainian government, as it's currently configured, to continue to exist and possess a military that's been empowered by NATO for the sole purpose of killing Russians. Um, to have any anything other than the total defeat of the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian military, means that Russia is going to be fighting a forever war of attrition, and that's a strategic defeat for Russia. It doesn't accomplish its primary goal in this conflict, which is to create the conditions for a new European security framework. I don't think Russia wants a new European security framework that has an empowered and emboldened Ukraine acting as a de facto NATO proxy right on its border. So the only way this conflict ends is, as Russia has said, with all objectives of the special military operation met, that includes denazification, that's the elimination of the Zelensky government, and demilitarization, the total eradication of the Ukrainian military. Larry, the same question to you. Um, essentially, if I could kind of encapsulate what uh, we just heard from Scott, I mean, I've been saying all along is that Russia cannot accept a compromise in which it'll have to do this again uh, in the next five years or the next 10 years. That's why there must be a definitive outcome. There's no win-win here, as everybody likes to say in the West. Larry. I agree with Scott. Uh, the, the bottom line is there's not going to be a negotiated settlement. This is not going to end through diplomacy. Uh, I think Russia has come to the correct understanding that there is no basis, no foundation for negotiating with the United States nor with NATO. They're, they're not to be, they're not trusted entities. Uh, the, the, the issue though is that uh, Russia is not fighting just Ukraine. Russia is fighting NATO, and it's fighting the United States. And yet NATO and the United States have very, very limited military power they can actually project. All they can do is, you know, sort of like a drug pusher continuing to supply fentanyl to some addicted addict like Ukraine and just continue to pump it in, hoping that they'll be able to come back and buy more product. But, But the reality is 
Ukraine's military capability is being eroded each and every day. It's not, we're not seeing the, you know, the sudden arrival of fixed wing aircraft or rotary wing or improved missile strikes or um, lots more artillery. We're actually facing the situation where even the ability of the West and NATO to resupply Ukraine is ending. So ultimately, how this ends militarily, it will end up with the defeat, not just of Ukraine, but the defeat of NATO. Yes. And that's what I think has a lot of people nervous. That's why they're so nervous about it here. Aaron, essentially the same question, maybe phrased in a little bit differently. The Biden administration has already made it very clear that it believes it's unlikely that Ukraine could ever uh, win on the battlefield. But they nonetheless continue to supply it with ample amounts of money and arms here. I mean, that is very hard to twist your head around because that means a lot of Ukrainians are dying and a lot of people are making money in the arms industry and the taxpayer is paying for it. I mean, there's some definitely winners and losers in that arrangement. If they can't win, why do they continue the conflict? Aaron. Well, in uh, 1956, I believe it was, you had the uprisings in Hungary, which were backed by uh, CIA and other elements of the U.S., uh, and this ultimately led to a crackdown from Moscow, and uh, the, the, the U.S. did not intervene, and as a result, these, um, this movement was crushed. And it was used as a propaganda victory for the U.S. Perhaps they are thinking that Russian, uh, that they can make some case for Russian brutality after this, after this war, uh, for propaganda purposes. It's difficult to say. Russia has yet to turn, uh, Kiev into Dresden as the, you know, the British and the U.S. did, uh, to Dresden in World War II, basically leveled the city with conventional weapons. It would, Russia would seem to have that capability at any moment, which makes this a very strange conflict where the, the power imbalance is so vast uh, on the side, vastly in favor on the side of the Russians, and uh, but they have yet they've been slow in the way that they've gone about this. I think that was a surprise to the U.S. Uh, who is, but who and it's been spun as Russian weakness, but I don't think that's really been the case. So I don't see how it ends without a Russian victory unless NATO and the U.S. enter overtly and. Uh, which would lead to a nuclear war. So I, I don't see how a Russian victory can be avoided. The question as to what will happen to the Zelensky regime is still up in the air. Uh, they, it, could Russia live with them still existing as a landlocked um, basket case oh, of a state oh, oh, is, I, is I, a question. I, I think Russia could deal with that quite easily because it'll be the EU's problem. Okay, the EU can take care of a bastard child called the new Ukraine. I think that's what's going to be the result here. Let me go back to Scott here. Um, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. That's, they love to say that, okay? But that wasn't the case at, at Istanbul. I mean, and so what kind of agency does Zelensky have in this situation? Because it looks like any kind of negotiation. We can't use the word diplomacy because diplomacy is to avoid wars. We're in a war right now, negotiations. But Zelensky said there will be no negotiations. I don't think he came up with that on, on his own, Scott. No, I mean, uh, we, we know April, in, in early April, uh, the Ukrainian uh, government was in a position to um, at least have serious discussions with their Russian counterparts about a diplomatic off-ramp from this conflict. Russia was... Um, you know, prepared to, you know, limit the scope and scale of its special military operation objectives, um, in exchange for, you know, the, the termination of this, of this conflict. Uh, 
Ukraine was prepared to discuss it, and they were told by the West, no, because the West, um, I think emboldened by, as, you, as the, your, your other guest indicated, by um, the failure of Russia to live up to the expectations of American military analysts, yeah. Uh, yeah. And misperceived uh, the, the low-key approach Russia was taking as a sign of weakness, and suddenly said, oh, we can exploit this, and, and, and we can actually further our objective of stripping Ukraine away. So we don't want a negotiated settlement that uh, limits our ability here. We want to expand this conflict. And so they shot down diplomacy. They began the process of a massive infusion of military assistance, transforming the Ukrainian army into a de facto NATO proxy. Uh, but And this has set it up. So even now, when today we have a situation where the West is realizing, holy cow, we're going to lose. Yeah. We need a diplomatic yeah. off-ramp to minimize, to mitigate the consequences of this loss. Ukrainians have doubled down. They can't negotiate a way out. There's no way the Ukrainian government could survive internally from a domestic perspective if they negotiated a settlement that gave Russia Crimea, the Donbass, Kherson, Zaporizhia. That just isn't going to happen. So there can be no negotiated settlement. The only thing that's going to happen here is unconditional surrender on the part of Ukraine. And then hopefully NATO will find a way to, you know, uh, salve its own wounds in a responsible fashion, uh, not overreacting. Don't let yeah. Poland go into yeah. Western Ukraine or Romania go yeah. into Moldova, things of that nature. Yeah, but uh, Larry, I mean, then what is the use of, of NATO if it can't win against Russia? Because it was designed against Russia, okay? That's why it's so ex existential for this useless, outdated alliance, okay? They made it uh, uh, to be or not to be. It, it's their fault, and they're going to pay the consequences for it. Larry? The, they op NATO operates much like a, a fantasy war game or a video game. In their own minds, they can accomplish a lot of things, but the reality is... They don't have the, the, the troop strength, the, the actual number of soldiers that they can move quickly to the front to fight. Uh, I, I was sort of surprised this last week with CBS News coming out and touting that the 101st yeah. Airborne is in Romania ready, ready to invade. And I was thinking, well, wait a second. They arrived in June. <laughs> so they've been there. They've been there at least five months. So now why all of the excitement? And and, and it boils down to the, the simple fact that with the touting the presence of the 101st Airborne, along with General David Petraeus now to calling for some sort of multinational fo uh, force uh, modeled after uh, what uh, went into Iraq in 2003, these are signs of weakness and desperation because they realize NATO can you know, the 4,700 4, members of the 101st Airborne, all they are is a lethal speed bump for the Russians. Russians will roll over them and kill a lot of Americans. And it's not like the United States and Germany and the UK have uh, two, three, 400,000 troops standing by that they could easily deploy. Uh, NATO's fixed-wing aircraft ability to penetrate uh, Russian airspace is nil. Russia's uh, anti-air a missile defense system is superb. The West has nothing comparable. So when you put all of this together, what you're seeing is that NATO is beginning to recognize that it's just the white elephant, and it has no more relevance to the 21st century. But, you know, the parallel is this. On the eve of World War II, the United States still had a horse cavalry, yeah. even though horse cavalry was no longer, no longer relevant to war. All right, gentlemen, we're going to go to a short break. And after that short break, we'll continue our discussion on the conflict in Ukraine. Stay with our team.
Welcome back to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter LaBelle. To remind you, we're discussing the conflict in Ukraine. Okay, let's go back to Aaron in Philadelphia. I want to stay with this um, the refusal to negotiate. Aaron, I don't understand. So much about this conflict coming from the West doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Um, uh, we, we, and the entire, you know, this was an unprovoked attack. You know, all of this ridiculous narratives that have come out, um, meaning that there was no prehistory to uh, any of this here. Um, I can't see how this not negotiating, not talking benefits Ukraine in any way. As a matter of fact, they, they're, the, they're the ones that are going to be uh, um, in the, getting the short end of the stick because you know, NATO will lick its wounds. It's Biden's war. It's Biden's fault. But, you know, the, the Ukrainian people end up getting the short end of the stick here because if you don't negotiate, then, then the Russians have no reason to stop what they're doing. I mean, I don't understand the logic here. If, if, if Ukraine truly is important to the West. Go ahead, Aaron. Well, they're not really important to the West. Uh, I think it was Henry Kissinger who said it's dangerous to be America's enemy, but deadly to be America's friend. Uh, so what, why won't they negotiate? I would, I'm assuming that NATO is really the sovereign in Ukraine and Zelensky knows that between NATO and the Nazis, or the neo-Nazis in Ukraine that are, uh, you know, a minority, but a very violent and well-armed and intelligence connected uh, minority that he doesn't have a lot of room to negotiate unless the U.S. says so and can guarantee him some kind of protection. Uh, I think if he had been told he could have negotiated peace with Russia, he would have done that and been fine with that. That was the platform that he ran on. But uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's a tragedy and the Ukrainians are being slaughtered uh, and I don't see what the U.S. plan is long term. I tend to think more and more these days that the U.S., actually planned to lure the Russians into invading Ukraine and expected them to roll over, uh, roll over them, roll over the country like the U.S. did in Iraq. And uh, that's sort of the gist of an intercept article, although they spin it in a different way. So perhaps the U.S. plan was uh, to get them into some kind of Afghanistan occupation. But I don't think Russia really wants to occupy those parts of the, the bitterly anti-Russian parts of Ukraine to begin with. So it's the U.S. seems to be just stringing this along, maybe hoping for some kind of gambit or miracle that will reverse their fortunes. But it's hard to see what the U.S. strategy even is at this point. And the Ukraine seem to be, be uh, being led to the slaughter, really. Yeah. Scott, you know, it's been mentioned before in the, in the many, many programs I've done this since the conflict started. But it, it's very interesting how particularly the Americans, maybe the British, uh, when they when they analyze uh, Russia's military efforts in Ukraine, they see it through the prism of shock and awe. They, they can't seem to comprehend what the Russians are doing. The Russians are bogged down. They have no ammo. They have no morale. But they, they see it through the vibes of maybe like, you know, the, the 2003 war against Iraq. Go ahead. No, I mean, this is a huge problem in the West because we don't have an appropriate metric uh, to do this. Um, you know, and I have to admit, I was guilty of the same thing. When this conflict started, I was applying my experience from Desert Storm and saying I was mirror imaging how we approached that conflict onto Russia and what I knew uh, were Russia's military capabilities. What I didn't factor in was the, the history of the Russian and the Ukrainian people. I didn't factor in that, you know, this is the equivalent of New York going to war against New Jersey. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, New Jersey girls marry New York boys. New York boys marry New Jersey girls. They have family. They have friends. They have 
lives, communities, uh, and suddenly they're at war with one another and what you expect them to roll in there and kill them as if they don't matter. Uh, this war has a, a psychological uh, reality attached to it uh, because of that, the complex history in, in between Russia and Ukraine that the West just doesn't get. We just don't comprehend. Yeah. We don't know yeah. how to uh, adapt our own prejudices about how war should be waged to this reality that this is almost, in effect, a civil war yeah. between yeah. people who have coexisted peacefully. Um, you scratch a Russian, you get a Ukrainian. You scratch a Ukrainian, you get a Russian. We in the West don't get it. We don't understand why Russia isn't going in whole hog, because that's what we would do against the Iraqis, because we have no emotional connection with the Iraqis. But I'm telling you right now, New Yorkers would not bomb New Jersey the way we bombed Iraq. They would go in soft. They would say, we don't want to do this. Let's work this thing out. The New, New Jersey would feel the same way. That's Ukraine and Russia. I know the Ukrainian government is taking a very hard stand. I know that there's this uh, neo-Nazi element. but. Yep. The Russians don't hate the Ukrainian people. Well, Scott is absolutely right here because this is really what this is was injected into the Maidan, this virulent anti-Russian element. Okay, and and very much supported by the West, by the way. That was their their leverage to create this. They wanted to create an ethnic. They do it all over the world, by the way. It's not the first time. Uh, Larry, I want to talk about for the rest of the program. I think we're all in agreement here, and I know my viewers are, is that um, Scott said it right from the top, you know, the, uh, a victory for Russia. What does that mean for the international system? Because I don't think the U.S. Is, and its allies are going to take it too well. Go ahead, Larry. The system created in the immediate aftermath of World War II is dead. Um, it just doesn't, you know, like a chicken running around with its head off, doesn't realize that it's dead. Uh, Washington, London, Berlin are in much the same condition. Uh, it started with the, with the imposition of the sanctions on Russia uh, and disrupting the international financial order. Once you remove Russia from SWIFT, and, and SWIFT is simply just a mechanism for communication between international banks, the incentive to set up an alternative financial system increased dramatically. And then when you couple that with the kind of pressure and bullying that uh, the Washington is trying to bring to bear on China, India, uh, other large countries, which actually do have some significant economic resources, even Brazil, then the, the mechanism of staying within the old international order or the desire to stay within that old international order uh, evaporates. And you've now had both Russia, China, India, uh, Brazil, South Africa, working towards constructing an alternative financial mm-hmm. order. That's number one. And now we're even seeing signs of, uh, from, from the Russians of, you know, maybe we just need to walk out of the UN. The UN has become a useless organization from the standpoint of uh, both Russia and China. And once that happens, we have now completely uh, destroyed the foundation that was the basis of peace in the aftermath of World War II. So we're on, we're on really, I think, the threshold of a genuine multipolar world as opposed to this unipolar world that we've uh, experienced over the last 20 years with the United States riding, you know, in charge. Yeah, but I, I agree with that. Aaron, I mean, Russia, China, India, Brazil can live with a multipolar world, okay? They've actually pushed for it, okay? Can the West, can the West tolerate that? Because that, that's, for me, the biggest, if we look at it in the biggest picture, it's about maintaining Western hegemony, and that is uh, slowly uh, seeping away. And, 
you know, a hegemon doesn't like to see that happen if they can uh, stop it. Go ahead, Aaron. Now, it may well be that the Ukraine war is something like the Suez crisis for the U.S. empire. When the U.S. set out during World War II to establish a global empire after the war, this was all planned by Wall Street's Council on Foreign Relations. There was opposition to that in the U.S. establishment in the form of the vice president, Henry Wallace, who instead called for a century of the common man. And this idea of a world world order governed by international law, generally speaking, and that would uh, allow technology to be dispersed to the global south, former colonized countries at the time they, they were still colonized. This was abandoned in favor of the American century. Okay, so this century of a common man is very similar to the idea of a multipolar world with national law, like what China has been proposing in recent years. And this may be what happens. It seems like Europe is going to be devastated by the fallout of this uh, this conflict in Ukraine. And it seems also like uh, the global south has every incentive to want to cut its ties with the uh, exploitative neocolonial system that the U.S. has presided over since the end of World War II. So Henry Wallace failed to establish this kind of world. Sukarno and the non-aligned movement were picked off one by one over decades, or, or they just died or other things happened, but that, that failed. There was an attempt in the 70s for a new international economic order. Gorbachev was calling for something like this at the time of the, around the time that the Soviet Union was dissolved. Uh, but it looks like there may be a shift to an actual multipolar world in the wake of this because the U.S. power is uh, evaporating. And that's what makes it so dangerous. That's yep. where the real risk is. The, the U.S. empire, that's why the U.S. is risking nuclear doomsday over Ukraine, which that's is right. absolutely absurd uh, on its face. Okay, Scott, I can't let uh, the progressive, uh, the, the 30 progressive Democrats letter go, go unnoticed here. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, they were supposed to be the, the, the moral bastion of, you know, of a, of a true foreign policy, a middle class foreign policy. What a flip flop. What an embarrassment. What a shame, Scott. And what an exposure of um, the reality of the, the dissolution of the, um, the, the American singularity, the American uh, hegemon. Um, look, the, these are people who know one ultimate truth. While their campaigns may be financed by special interests, therefore they must put policies in place that uh, feed the hand, you know, that, that that's, makes the hand that feeds them happy. Um, they get elected by the American people. And the American people aren't happy with this current policy. Uh, by and large, the American people are drifting away from the notion of supporting Ukraine with billions of dollars while we uh, need help. The Democrat, that this letter was written because they saw the writing on the wall. They're going to get wiped out in the midterms. Uh, and one of the reasons is because of the economy. And it's very difficult to explain to American people who want further investment here at home why we're giving billions in a wasted effort in Ukraine. So they wrote the letter. They got ahead of the uh, ahead of their skis in terms of the White House. So they were slapped back. Yay. You know what's going to happen? They're going to get wiped out in the midterms. And uh, the re Republicans are come in and the Republicans know in order to stay in power, it's not that they have to be pro-Putin. They just have to enact policies to keep the American public happy so that they can get voted in the next time. And this is what the end of the American empire looks like. It's not going to be some muscular military giant running around the world going crazy. It's going to be this sloth, this slow death of the American people just saying, we're done, we're finished. 
isolationism. That's what we're going to see. I don't think you're going to be seeing nuclear war. You're yeah. going to be seeing in well, I mean, Scott, Scott, Scott f- fingers crossed because these people have do very crazy things. Okay, particularly recently. Let's hope your prognosis uh, plays out. All right, gentlemen, that's all the time we have. Many thanks to my guests in Philadelphia, Tampa, and in Delmar, and thanks to our viewers for watching us here at RT. See you next time. Remember, crosstalk rules.